You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. And uh, this particular message, I'm going to read a lot to you. I usually read out of the ESV. Uh, Part of the reason that I like that translation is because it's worded weird. They try to work with the way that the Bible's worded, which is sometimes kind of strange. And that stands out to me while I'm reading it. So I can stop and say, why do the Bible writers phrase it that way? Because they don't do those things on accident. So I like that the ESV is a little clunky when I'm reading it. But... Today, I want you to get into the narrative. And so I'm going to read um, N.T. Wright's translation, uh, the Kingdom New Testament, because I just want you to kind of dive into the story of what's going on. We're not stopping to pause on specific words or things like that. But for you to just really become involved in what happened. Because last week, when we were going through Luke, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. And he is sweating blood. He is so deep in anxiety and emotional pain that an angel needs to minister to him. An angel is dispatched to him, which is unusual. That doesn't happen very often in the Bible or in your lives. If you can remember all the times that you talked to angels, that will help you realize, like, that's unusual. That's how desperate Jesus was. He needed kind of like a sign, like, is the cross really the right way? Am I really supposed to embrace this? I know it's right, but at the same time, this turmoil in me tells me, oh, I so badly don't want to uh, do that. That's going to hurt, right? So Jesus is so deep in this anxiety. I want you to see the full weight of what he walked into because he chose to embrace that. He chose to step into that. And the story of the cross has become so familiar to us that a lot of times we hear about it, we don't even think about it. Like we wear cross necklaces around our neck, which like if it was back then, it would be the same thing as wearing a necklace of an electric chair around your neck. Like like this thing is intense. Nobody plans on going to a cross. That's the thing that you try to avoid at all costs. That's why Jesus is sweating blood. But that's not the only kind of of difficulty that he's going to face along the way. He's going to be turned over to his own people. He's going to be turned over to the religious people who are also going to mock him. Jesus, in some ways, can relate to the Me Too movement, the ways in which he too was hurt by the church or the people who were trying to follow Yahweh, the way that they, they treated him. If that kind of stuff broke the news today, we'd be like, Oh, I'm never going to that church. I cannot believe the way that they treated him. So I want you to get the full weight of what Jesus goes through here. So I'm going to read about two chapters of the narrative and see if you can create space in your mind to hear the cross in a much deeper light since we often become so familiar to it and desensitized to it. The men who were holding Jesus began to make fun of him and knock him about. They blindfolded him. Prophesy, they told him. Who is it that's hitting you? They said many other scandalous things to him. When the day broke, the official assembly of the people, the chief priests and the scribes came together and they took him off to their council. 
If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. If I tell you, he said, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God's power. So you're the Son of God, are you? They said. You say that I am, he said to them. Why do we need any more witnesses, they said. We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The whole crowd of them got up and took Jesus to Pilate. They began to accuse him. We found this fellow, they said, deceiving our nation. He was forbidding people to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, you are the king of the Jews. You said it, replied Jesus. I find no fault in this man, said Pilate to the chief priests and the crowds. But they became insistent. He's stirring up the people, they said, teaching them throughout the whole of Judea. He began in Galilee, and now he's come here. When Pilate heard that, he asked if the man was indeed Galilean. When he heard that he was from Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them to Herod, who also happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was delighted. He had heard, he had been wanting to see him for quite some time since he'd heard about him and hoped to see him perform some sign or other. He questioned him this way and that, but Jesus gave no answer at all. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, accusing him vehemently. Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt. They ridiculed him by dressing him up in a splendid robe and sent him back to Pilate. And so it happened that very day that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Up until then, they had been enemies. So Pilate called the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. You brought this man before me, he said to them on the grounds that he was leading the people astray. Look here then, I examined him in your presence and I found no evidence in him of the charges you're bringing against him. Nor did Herod, he sent him back to me. Look, there is no sign that he's done anything to deserve death, so I'm going to flog him and let him go. Take him away, they shouted together. Release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison because of an uprising that had taken place in the city for murder. Pilate spoke to them again with the intention of letting Jesus go, but they shouted back, Crucify him! Crucify him! Why? he said for the third time. What's he done wrong? I can't find anything he's done that deserves death, so I'm going to beat him and let him go. But they went on shouting out at the tops of their voices, demanding that he be crucified. And eventually, their shouts won the day. Pilate gave his verdict that their request would be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who'd been thrown into prison because of the rebellion and murder, and gave Jesus over to their demands. So they led him away. They grabbed a man from Cyrene called Simon, who was coming into the city from outside, and they forced him to carry the crossbeam behind Jesus. A great crowd of people followed Jesus, including women who were mourning and wailing for him. Jesus turned and spoke to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, don't cry for me. 
Cry for yourselves instead. Cry for your children. Listen, the time is coming when you will say, a blessing on the barren, a blessing on wombs that never bore children and breasts that never nursed them. At that time, people will start to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Yes, if this is what they do to the green tree, what will happen to the dry one? Two other criminals were taken away with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Father, said Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They divided his clothes, casting lots on them. The people stood around watching. The rulers hurled abuse at him. He rescued others, they said. Let him try rescuing himself if he really is the Messiah, God's chosen one. The soldiers added their taunts, coming up and offering him cheap wine. If you're the king of Jews, they said, rescue yourself. The charge was written above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the bad characters who was hanging there began to insult him. Aren't you the Messiah? He said, rescue yourself and us too. But the other one told him off. Don't you fear God? He said. You're sharing the same fate that he is. In our case, it's fair enough. We're getting exactly what we asked for. But this fellow hasn't done anything out of order. Jesus, he went on, remember me when you finally become king? I'm telling you the truth, replied Jesus. You'll be with me in paradise this very day. By the time of the sixth hour, darkness came over all the land. The sunlight vanished until the ninth hour. The veil of the temple was ripped down the middle. Then Jesus shouted at the top of his voice, Here's my spirit, Father. You can take care of it now. And with that, he died. The centurion saw what happened and praised God. This fellow, he said, really was in the right. All the crowds who had come together for the spectacle saw what happened, and they went away beating their breasts. Those who knew Jesus, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, remained at a distance and watched the scene. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man. He had given consent to the court's verdict or actions. He had not given consent to the court's verdicts or action. He was from Arimathea, town of Judea. And he was longing for God's kingdom. He approached Pilate, asked for Jesus' body, took it down, wrapped it in a shroud, put it in a tomb, hollowed out of a rock where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had followed Jesus, the ones who had come with him from Galilee, saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And they went back to prepare spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested as the commandments specified. You know, Jesus often gives us really intense um, messages, telling us that those of us who aren't going to follow him through thick and thin, we're, we're not worthy of him. And when we hear messages like that, we're just like, oh, that's, that's a lot of pride right there, not worthy of him. But when you look at his story, a story of which none of us have ever encountered, none of us would ever hope to encounter, 
we recognize like we're not worthy. Like as we follow him, we become worthy of the resurrection. We become worthy of what he's calling us into. But when it comes to like the story that he's told, he's God. He's God putting on flesh, coming and living among us, never commits a sin, never does anything wrong, does nothing but help people and love people everywhere he goes. He puts aside his own health. He puts aside his own mental health to constantly stay focused on loving people the way that God loves them. To the extent that the Bible consistently says that he's overcome by a splank isomai. That's a beautiful word, I know. It's this Greek word, splank isomai. It's this feeling in your, your bowels or this feeling in your, your gut that you have to help someone. There's times where Jesus is so tired he doesn't have, him in, have it in him. But then this, this feeling deep down, that kind of feeling that you've had before where somebody tells you their story of how they, they need help and your stomach is just like, oh my gosh, what can I do? That tale is so hard to hear. What do I do? I sat in this room just two days ago as a new person came in for for some inner healing session and they shared their story and it is by far the most cruel story I've ever heard in my life and my stomach just this splonk my what can I do the Bible translates splonk my compassion Jesus is filled with compassion for you for the people that he spent time with for the crowds, the faceless crowds. Some of those people there who didn't even care about him, they're just there for a miracle, and he cared about them too. Some of them might be the ones who in the end, maybe they didn't get their miracle, or maybe they've heard new rumors about Jesus. They might be the ones there saying, crucify him, crucify him. What happened? He came into Jerusalem so strong, he liberated the poor at the temple, flipping over tables of the people that oppressed him. People were cheering for him. People hung on his every word, his exousia, his authority. There's a different kind of feeling in preaching that has exousia. And people caught it in Jesus. That at the Sermon on the Mount, even though a bunch of the stuff he preached was different than what they were used to hearing, they knew it was right. Because his exousia was so real. His authority was so real. His words carried like a spiritual sense in them. That you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, that, that does feel right. Everywhere he went, he did good. When he came about, he read the mission statement. Here's why I'm here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to liberate the captives, to to help the blind see. And then he carried out that mission. Not just coming and preaching, but coming and doing. And when he came up to people who, who thought that they had it all together, he always had more steps that they could go. Jesus, here's all the things that I've done. Oh, that's great. Those are the kinds of things that you should be doing. By the way, did you sell all your stuff and give it to the poor? <laughs> well, that's kind of extreme. Look, Jesus, I'll follow you, but um, 
my father just died. I, I just need to go to the funeral. I'll let the dead bury the dead. Let's, let's go. Well, that seems kind of extreme. Jesus, I got this. Jesus, I got that. And Jesus set a precedent. Like, I am worthy of anything that I need from you. And the cross becomes so much more of the tale as to why that is. Like, wow, he went through that for us. He did not hold back. He was persecuted by the church. He was persecuted by the government. He was persecuted as a capital punishment on the cross, bleeding out. And you didn't, a lot of times we don't even understand how bad the cross was. There are people who have done studies to say what it would be like to undergo a crucifixion. And if you read the fine details of what it's like, I posted it on our Nerd Church Discord once because we were talking about it online. And I think Joel's words to it were just like, well, that's a horror story. It is. That's all the more reason he becomes worthy of whatever he needs. And here's the thing. A lot of times we think like, well, God's just calling us into like all this difficulty and my life's not going to be fun and there's not going to be anything for me if I'm giving all of my life up to Jesus. But on the other side of giving your life up to Jesus, the, the full dedication of who you are to him, like there's no better story that can be told. The kinds of stories that come out of those places are the kinds of stories that most Christians are longing for. Oh, I just wish Jesus would talk. I just wish he would speak. I just wish I would experience his presence. I just wish I would experience his voice and, and all these other kinds of things. I think you're more apt to find that when you give the fullness of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to him. That's the Shema. That's actually a word that somebody just gave me a few weeks ago. They were praying in the middle of the night and they, they sent me a text and they're like, I feel like God just said the fullness of what you're looking for is in the Shema. Now they didn't even know that was a word. They're like, I don't, I Googled it. Apparently it is a word. It is a word. It's actually a very important Hebrew word. I love that people are just hearing Hebrew words in the middle of the night <laughs> in our church. It's a, it's a very popular Bible verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think sometimes when we're talking about giving God more, we're thinking that that can only be in time. Like more events, more church stuff, more, more this, more that. And those things are important, and yes, I think they are a part of it. But... He needs more of you and all the things of you that make up the essence of you. That specific word to me for the, to give him the Shema, like I, I knew what he was talking about. My heart and mind needed some connections together. One was always trying to block out the other in making the right kinds of decisions. He was asking for the fullness of me, not just one piece of me. He wanted the unification of all the parts of who I am. But the more and more that I have given to him, the more I have been energized by ministry rather than deflated by it. And the more and more I have given to him, 
the more that I have seen the kinds of stories that I always longed for. God, I want to see you free people from demons. I want to see you heal people. I want to see miracles. I want to see signs and wonders. And those kinds of things like, have become so much more commonplace in my life now than they've ever been. Why? Because as we rise up together saying, I'm going to give God the Shema, I'm going to give him the fullness of who I am, we all begin to create a community in which God can, can really come upon us. So many years ago, we, we had this vision of this cherry blossom that God was calling us into renewal. We just had to repent. But the next step from repentance is to begin to, to change. Repentance oftentimes in the Bible was not just like, a, I'm sorry I did that thing. You then had to do something to follow up that repentance to prove that you were repentant. So John the Baptist, for example, when he's talking to people and they come up to him like, okay, I want to repent, he would give them instructions. All right, you're a tax collector. Go give money to the poor as part of your repentance. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact scenarios that he gave, but he, he had different things to say to the different people that repented. And when we start putting our actions where our repentance is, we start to validate that we truly do care. And when we start to truly care, we start to move into the Shema. We start to give the fullness of all the different pieces of who we are, the essence of who we are, until God begins to chisel on the image of him that is in us. And we become more like Jesus every day. And when you start to become more like Jesus, he begins to trust you with more things. And the Bible gives that example often. That as he gives out gifts and he sees that some are using it correctly, he begins to give them more gifts. And that's the kind of stuff that I think we need to continue to press in here at 1208, is to recognize what Jesus did. He's worthy of anything he wants from us. He's worthy of, of anything that he would request. And he honors us when we follow through with his kinds of requests. And it's not like we do things to get things out of it. But the intimacy of God, the fullness of God, is on the other side of, of pursuing him, of, of chasing him down. And I think the church often lives in this marriage where Jesus has shown us, like, I would jump in front of a bullet for you. I would be tortured for you. I would do anything for you. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. And that's, we already know that's true because he's already done it, right? We know all that. But his marriage with the church sometimes has a bride that's just like, that's great. Thank you for doing that for me. Love you too, Jesus. That's not a relationship that's, that's real secure. That's not a relationship that it proves itself. When you have your husband, who is Christ, who's just doing everything, and then his bride, who is us, who's just like, yeah, whatever you need. That's cool. I'm going to go watch TV. Yeah. Not that he can't sit and watch TV with us. It's an analogy, right? But when our passion does not match his, we have to stop and be convicted and say, 
I've got more I can give still. There is more of me that can meet the standards of really actually carrying a cross like he asked me to do. There is more of me that I can still give over to him that I haven't done yet. One of the words that somebody gave me recently that's kind of inspired this particular direction of this message was uh, um, they just sensed the possibility of a word, temperature control. Passage that came to their mind was that in Revelation, um, where I would rather you not be lukewarm, I'd rather you be cold, I'd rather you be hot, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out. Well, that's often in the American church. I think that's kind of where we chill out, is on this lukewarm space where it's like, eh, church is this thing that I go to. Jesus is this relationship that blesses me. He's a very good spouse, and I can just do whatever I want. That's, that's not a strong marriage. That's not a strong spirituality where God becomes the genie that blesses you, and that's it. Strong marriage is us giving back, and it's no wonder that we find the intimacy that God wants to give us when we're present in the fullness of what we can give in that Shema. And our heart, soul, mind, and strength are all invested into that. When Jesus quoted that as the most important commandment, he wasn't just making it up, he was quoting the Shema. And so I give that to you to walk in that with me, that here at 1208, we're, we're not settling. He looked at churches that settled in Revelation, churches that were like the big churches of the time. He's like, look, I've seen the kinds of things that you guys have done, but if I was to give critique to you right now, I wish that you would love people like you did before. Like all the churches get critique. I wish that you would love people like you did before. Get back to the works that you used to do. Again, what would be Jesus' Yelp review of 1208? <laughs> what would be his calling to us to, to give more of? That's different for each one of us, but that's also something to say to us as a, a whole body. What we do here, this is family. What we do here, this is the bride of Christ. And we join in with all the other churches across Jackson, across America, across the world, as we all sing together in our diversity that he is worthy. But our lives should reflect that too. If we want renewal, we need to check the temperature gauge. Where are we at? Have we paused? Have we settled in our marriage with Jesus? because it's going just fine how it is. That could be a dangerous place to be because when you settle, eventually things get disrupted. And sometimes you gotta fall pretty far to get back up because we don't wake up otherwise to what we're in. So as we look at the cross today, let's recognize that the things that Jesus said about how um, those who aren't going to follow him the distance aren't worthy of him. Let's look at what he did and realize, like, yeah, he's literally worthy of whatever he wants of us. There is nothing that we should be holding back from him. And I'll close with one story from a missionary called uh, Mahesh Chavda. 
Um, this guy, I think, gives us a good example of what it's like when you're stuck in a situation and it feels like, oh God, right now is not the time where I want to give you more of me. And yet you feel the Spirit calling you to give more of yourself. Um, I think you see the beauty of what God does when you step into that. So Mahesh, uh, he's been a, a evangelist and a missionary and a pastor here in the States for a while. He grew up uh, overseas. Uh, and when uh, he and his wife were pregnant, they had a, um, a premature birth. His baby was palm-sized. It was one pound, three ounces. And it was four months early. And at the same time, Mahesh was supposed to be getting on a plane to go to Africa to do ministry. And there was a real tension because, of course, any family man it wants to stay there and be there. Like, you just had your son. It's very early. You know this is dangerous. And yet his wife knew that he was supposed to go to Africa nonetheless. And he felt that tension with the Holy Spirit calling him to Africa as well. So he went... And he eventually reached Kinshasa, where there was 2,300 people present. And he prayed for a woman that had cancerous tumors that covered her body. And everybody watched as they vanished right in front. I mean, that's like a straight-up, like, Jesus thing. Right? You see that in the Gospels. I think a really cool portrait of it, if you've watched The Chosen, there's a spot where Jesus heals the leper and you just watch it all go away. And that stuff has actually happened around the world. So this story about this woman who had these tumors just kind of vanish in front of them, that got around. And more people started showing up to the next meeting. And so many were healed that the next night there were actually witches and sorcerers from around that area that came to try to disrupt the meeting. And all the witches and sorcerers got saved and followed Jesus as well. And so the revival kept continuing, and at that time there was a man in town that had lost his six-year-old son. And he was praying that God would bring his son back to life, and he didn't know what to do when he felt like he hold, heard the Holy Spirit say, Why are you weeping? My servant is in the city. Go to him. So he learned about Mahesh and what he was doing in town, and eight hours after his child died, he ran there, and he, he showed up and said, uh, or he showed up, and around the time they showed up, Mahesh felt the Holy Spirit talking to him. And the Spirit said, there's a man here whose son died this morning. Invite him to come forward. I want to do something wonderful for him. So Mahesh spoke that into the mic. The man ran forward. They prayed together, and he bolted back to the hospital to find his son alive again. And then Mahesh returned home to find his son alive as well. When we look at these kinds of stories, we realize, like, man, God sometimes calls a lot of us. That was a lot of faith and trust to step out, not knowing if you'd ever see your son again. It was a lot of faith and trust running out there to say, my own child has died, and I'd like to see him resurrected. But everybody pressed in together. I don't think Mahesh is is sorry that he went. And I'd wonder, you know, if his own son hadn't made it, would he be sorry that he went still if he knew that he was being faithful to God? Those are tough stories, of course, and it's hard to imagine those kinds of things. 
But when we press into the fullness of what God requests that we do, and we learn to trust, we learn to follow, and we learn to put our fullness into the Shema, and we realize that He's already given it all for us, and in this marriage we should give it all back, there's just no telling what kind of stories will come out on the other side. So Jesus, we give our lives to you right now. Let that not just be an empty statement that we always say at church. Let the songs that we sang this morning about building our lives upon you not just be worship songs, but be, be truths that we're putting into melody. That you truly are worthy of every breath that we would ever breathe. So may that matter to us in every capacity. Don't let us get caught up in all of our own kinds of ways of thinking and living and just saying, like, it's fine. We can do whatever we want. Let us learn to listen to you. We want more of you. And we know to get that, that we need to give more of us. So help us here as a body at 1208 to check our temperature. Help us say, if there's more that I can give, I want to be boiling lava hot like Jesus was boiling lava hot for me. So teach us how to do that and let that reign true in our lives as we continue to chisel. In Jesus' name, amen.